Hi, welcome to Broadway Assembly Church Podcast. We are excited for you to be joining us today. If you want to get a notification of the most recent uploads, please subscribe to our podcast. Thank you for joining us, and we hope you enjoy. We're going to uh, make our way over to chapter 4. We uh, uh, closed out chapter 3 last Wednesday. So uh, we're going to be looking at Daniel chapter 4, and uh, I've called this lesson simply one word, chopped. I'm not referring to the food network either. (laughs) Uh, We'll be uh, getting into this lesson. Hopefully it'll be kind of self-explanatory as to why I called it that, uh, due to this dream that King Nebuchadnezzar had, and so uh, before we move into our text, I want you to note two things uh, about this fourth chapter of Daniel, okay? If you've got your Bibles open, you can take a look at it here with me. The first thing I want you to notice is unlike other chapters in Daniel, this one was written by the king. Okay, this one's written by the king himself. In fact, the first and last few verses are written in the first person singular. Uh, And reading this chapter is almost like reading the king's personal diary. He found out that God, in a sense, has a divine axe And he isn't afraid to use it to cut us down to size when we become too arrogant and too egotistical. Okay, so that's the first thing. Unlike the other chapters in Daniel, this one's written by the king himself. Secondly, Daniel 4 describes in detail the king's most humiliating experience. It would be as if your personal journal was posted online so that your deepest private thoughts and hidden secrets were revealed to everybody to read. So those two facts tell us that this chapter contains quite an extraordinary story, right? And if we were to be totally transparent, what happened to Nebuchadnezzar can happen to all of us sooner or later. We get lifted up in self-importance and pride, and then God comes down and doesn't he have a way to humble us, right? And for many of us, I know for me, it's happened more than once, right? And therefore, this ancient story speaks some very relevant truths uh, to all of us. So, let us read 1 through uh, 3. Go ahead and stand, and we'll get these first few verses uh, and use them as our introduction here before we move forward. All right, so Daniel chapter 4 and verses 1 through 3, Nebuchadnezzar the king Unto all people, nations, and languages that dwell in all the earth, peace be multiplied unto you. I thought it good to show the signs and wonders 
that the high God hath wrought toward me. Somebody say, Nebuchadnezzar is about to testify. That's what it is. How great are his signs. How mighty are his wonders. His kingdom is an everlasting kingdom. And his dominion is from generation to generation. That's the truth if Nebuchadnezzar ever spoke the truth. And so we're going to find out how he got there as this chapter unfolds. Heavenly Father, thank you for time we have together in your word tonight. Thank you for the book of Daniel. Thank you, Lord, for each and every one that's gathered here tonight in person and online. Bless them wherever they are listening from, we pray. Touch them, minister, encourage and enlighten, challenge and inspire. Jesus' precious name, all God's children shout, I love him. I got you on that one. You started to say amen. God bless you. You can be seated. Amen, amen. All right. So uh, we have been reminded repeatedly that the book of Daniel puts God's sovereignty on full display. And so to recap, God issued a dream to Nebuchadnezzar that no one could discern. It was a dream that revealed God's sovereign decree regarding the nations of the world. God already knew who would rule, how long they would rule, and who would bring them down. Nebuchadnezzar clearly did not like God's indication that his kingdom would not last forever, so he set out to find the traitors who might be instrumental in overthrowing him and eliminating them in a fiery furnace. Okay, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego became prime suspects when they refused to bow to his golden image and were thrown into the furnace of fire. God, we know, as we talked about last week, intervened. How many's had some divine intervention in your life? God intervened and showed Nebuchadnezzar that nothing and no one can prevent his sovereign plan. But as we pointed out last week, even though it was clear that with each incident Nebuchadnezzar made certain spiritual progress, it was also obvious that he just wasn't there yet. He was not where he needed to be spiritually. Okay, because after the first dream, what's he do? He honors Daniel. After the fiery furnace, what's he do? He acknowledges God. But Nebuchadnezzar yet had not submitted himself to the God of the universe in humility or any kind of obedience. That is where this chapter comes in. In chapter 4, Nebuchadnezzar finally, everybody say finally, he finally gets it. All right? Have you ever looked at somebody after trying to explain something to them and said, don't you get it? Huh? Have you ever heard somebody say, oh, I get it. Right? Nebuchadnezzar, this is, oh, I got it. That's his chapter. That's his testimony here. Okay? So he's actually, if you really want to be precise, he got it somewhere between chapters 3 and 4. Okay? Because chapter 4 is his personal testimony after the fact 
that he got it. Okay? Now, we all love a good testimony. Recounting the day when a person moved from spiritual death to spiritual life. I like a good testimony. Nothing like a good testimony, right? And nothing like a bad one either. It can take the service down in a hurry. We all love a good testimony. I remember going to Bible school, Brother Beam, Sister Beam would always say, Brother Beam, you need to have testimony service. He'd say, I know it, Sister Beam. It's clear. He'd say, I know it. But he said, how many bad ones you got to wade through to get a good one? Hello. Because a lot of times the testimonies become a whinemony, just whining about, now, this is going to be a testimony, and it's a good one. It's a good one. Describing the day when a person's transferred from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light. This is Nebuchadnezzar's personal testimony of his, if you want to call it, spiritual awakening. In pointing that out, before we listen to his account, I want to make sure that we pick up on a couple important points that must be in place for a testimony really to seem legit. Today we hear a lot of testimonies like, Uh, the two recorded in chapters 2 and 3, where we hear a lot of people acknowledge that God is the higher power. But how many know that alone doesn't mean a person is saved? People can even attend church, sing in the choir, even amen the preacher, and that doesn't mean they're fully trusting Christ. The difference we note here in chapter 4 is the humility, the submission that follows this testimony, along with the worship, because those things are different in chapter 4 in in the life of Nebuchadnezzar. And as we progress through this chapter, we can see his spiritual growth, okay? He goes from arrogance to conviction, from conviction to brokenness, from brokenness to discernment, and finally from discernment to submission to God. And these actions and attitudes we find are actually absolutes that should be in a redeemed life. So, while this chapter, notice on your study guide, walks through a very dark time in the king's life, it is in fact one of the greatest demonstrations of the sovereign mercy of God in all, everybody say all, in all of Scripture. So, we're going to do this by looking at three points. Number one, the declaration. We read it in verses 1 through 3. Now, having just finished chapter 3, where Nebuchadnezzar was trying to force everyone to worship a a 90-foot image, golden image, and having learned at the end uh, that even though he did acknowledge that God was the Most High God, we are still a little surprised to hear such a declaration as this come out of Nebuchadnezzar's mouth right here. But what we got to understand is that there's some time, quite a bit of time between the closing verse of chapter 3, and the opening verse of chapter 4. So keep that in mind, okay? His declaration, he said, I thought it good to show the signs and wonders that the high God hath wrought or done toward me. Make no mistake that according to Nebuchadnezzar, everything that was done to him in this chapter is now seen as a tremendous act of grace on the part of God. And I'm a firm believer that One day in heaven, and if not sooner, we will look back on the moments of 
pain in our lives and unmistakably say, Lord, that was perfect. Thank you so much for what you did right there. Right? Because Nebuchadnezzar is just another piece of evidence to support that claim that we may not like it when we're going through it, but we can learn through it and we can grow through it. And here we have a man who had absolutely no qualms about, number one, attacking God's country, burning God's temple, exiling God's people, forcing them to worship a false god. And yet here we have an amazing declaration of faith and worship from his lips. Verse 3, how great are his signs, Nebuchadnezzar says. How mighty are his wonders. His kingdom is an everlasting kingdom. Now all the way up to here, he's wanting his kingdom to be the everlasting kingdom. He got, out of, he got all bent out of shape when Daniel said, no, you're not going to be the one that lasts forever. There's many kingdoms coming after you, Nebuchadnezzar. And so here he's realizing, yeah, God's kingdom is the kingdom that's going to last forever, and his dominion is from generation to generation. Now, if you let that sink in, in chapter 3, Nebuchadnezzar's entire goal was to prove that his kingdom was the everlasting one, but here, all of a sudden, he's singing a drastically different tune, okay? And if you wonder what in the world happened, keep going, we're going to find out. That leads us to point two on your study guide, the explanation, that covers a lot of verses, okay? And I realize this is a long portion of text as Nebuchadnezzar gives his testimony. So we need to kind of break it down uh, into some bite-sized pieces tonight. So we're going to do that by five points underneath this uh, number two, okay? So five things I want us to notice. Number one, it starts with peace removed. Peace removed. Okay, we begin this story by giving at least some recognition to the man Nebuchadnezzar, okay, to who he was before all of this happened, okay, because I think it's interesting, a testimony is meant to reveal the change that God has brought about in our life, right? And if we don't know what you were, then we can't see the difference in what you are, Right? Do you follow me? But Nebuchadnezzar's beginning might surprise you, okay? Often we think testimonies should start with something like, mm, I was a drug-dealing terrorist. I kidnapped people, murdered puppies with a toy I stole from a small blind child. And on and on and on. But Nebuchadnezzar doesn't mention any of that. Nothing about his invasion of Israel previously. Nothing about his robbing or burning of God's temple. Nothing about his brainwashing of the Hebrew refugees. Nothing about his life of idolatry. Nothing about his brutality throwing fellows in the fire. In fact, this is how he starts. I, Nebuchadnezzar, was at rest in mine house and flourishing in my palace. This means that he was in the worst possible condition that a human heart could be in. I want you to get that. He was in deep, dark sin, and it did not even bother him. He was a classic example of a seared conscience. 
Paul describes this reality in Ephesians 4, 17 through 19. If you want to refer to that in the future, he describes a people who do evil things and they do not have even the hint of it being wrong. They legitimately think right is wrong and wrong is right. I think about this in our culture. How many know the moral lines have been blurred, but the moral battle lines are also drawn on issues like abortion, on issues like transgenderism. There are plenty of people in our culture today, personally, there's probably some moral people, friendly people, but they genuinely in their heart believe that supporting such unscriptural lifestyles is is the right thing to do. Like Nebuchadnezzar, it says he was at rest, which really in the Hebrew means at ease, in his palace. And that is implying to us that if we are waiting on him to feel bad about his godless life, we're going to be waiting a while because it wasn't going to happen anytime soon. And church, this is a good explanation of what it means to be spiritually lost. When a person is spiritually dead with a seared conscience, there is absolutely no possibility that they will ever feel bad about what they have done. You know that? They have no capacity for it. They are spiritually dead. They are immune to the things of God. They are unbothered. They are unconcerned. They will not feel guilty for what they've done. And this is why we talk about the necessity of God's convicting grace. Because convicting grace informs the lost that they are lost. Right? If God doesn't reveal it to them and reveal that they are in danger, they're not going to know it. Nebuchadnezzar certainly had no clue until God chose to remove his peace. How did God do that? One dream. One dream. Verse 5, I saw a dream which made me afraid. And the thoughts upon my bed and the visions of my head troubled me. Notice that, I think this is on your study guide, with one dream, God took every ounce of peace and comfort that Nebuchadnezzar owned. And we see that a fear immediately overtook him and caused him to seek the meaning of this second dream that he had just experienced. And notice that just like before, he once again turns to the wrong people for a solution. In verses 6 and 7, he testifies that he turns to the wise men, the fortune tellers, the soothsayers of his kingdom, just like he did previously. Okay? It's just another indicator that while he had acknowledged God, he still did not have a relationship with God, nor did he seek God's counsel or guidance. But when that wisdom failed, the worldly wisdom And how many know it always will? 
right? He was once again forced to appeal to the man whom God had placed in his path. Let's read verses 8 and 9. But at the last, Daniel came in before me, whose name was Belteshazzar, according to the name of my God, and in whom is the spirit of the holy gods. And before him, I told the dream, saying, O Belshazzar, um, Belshazzar, master of the magicians, because I know that the spirit of the holy gods is in thee, and no secret troubleth thee, tell me the visions of my dream that I have and the interpretation thereof. Now, some would wonder, why? Why Nebuchadnezzar wouldn't have sought out Daniel immediately? After all, Daniel had already proven himself regarding dreams, and it was clear that Nebuchadnezzar knew of Daniel's ability. Why would he not have sought him first? Well, I think the answer lies in how Nebuchadnezzar describes Daniel right there in those verses. He says, I know that the spirit of the holy gods is in him. And how many know, when you've been living like Nebuchadnezzar, that's the last type of God that you want to hear from? The holy God. He knew what Daniel was about. He knew how Daniel lived. He knew what Daniel's God wanted, which was holy living. And that is something Nebuchadnezzar was not interested in. So he wouldn't seek Daniel's help until all the other options had been exhausted. Right? So he finally appealed to Daniel and told him the dream. That's in verses 10 through 18. Are you up for getting the dream down? Let's read the dream. It'll help us uh, understand what's going on here. Okay. Thus were the visions of mine head in my bed. I saw and behold a tree in the midst of the earth. Everybody say a tree. And the height thereof was great. All right. So this is a big tree. The tree grew, was strong, and the height thereof reached unto heaven, and the sight thereof to the end of all the earth. The leaves thereof were fair, and the fruit thereof much, and in it was meat for all. The beasts of the field had shadow under it, and the fowls of the heaven dwelt in the boughs or branches thereof, and all flesh was fed of it. I saw in the visions of my head upon my bed, and behold, a watcher and a holy one came down from heaven. He cried aloud and said thus, Hew down the tree and cut off his branches. Shake off his leaves. Scatter his fruit. Let the beasts get away from under it and the fowls from his branches. Nevertheless, leave the stump of his roots in the earth, even with a band of iron and brass and the tender grass of the field, and let it be wet with the dew of heaven, and let his portion be with the beasts in the grass of the earth. Let his heart be changed from man's, and let a beast's heart be given unto him, and let seven times pass over him. Somebody say seven years. This matter is by the decree of the watchers, and the demand by the word of the holy ones, to the intent that the living may know that the Most High ruleth in the kingdom of men, and giveth it to whomsoever he will, and setteth up over it the basest or the lowliest of men. This dream I, King Nebuchadnezzar, have seen. 
Now, thou old Belshazzar, declare the interpretation thereof. Forasmuch as all the wise men of my kingdom are not able to make known unto me the interpretation, but thou art able, for the spirit of the holy gods is in thee. Now, if it had simply been a dream about a tree, one would have to wonder if Nebuchadnezzar would have been upset. But even in the dream, it was made clear to him that we're talking about a human. Notice the pronouns used in verse 15. The tree is even called a man in verse 16. So Nebuchadnezzar knew this vision was about a person. Okay? And the purpose of this dream is also clearly stated or explained in verse 17. Okay? Look there again. To the intent that the living may know that the Most High ruleth in... I'm telling you, Nebuchadnezzar would be like, wait a minute. This is talking about me. I don't need help figuring this out. I'm sure he looked at that one line that says the basest or the lowliest of men wears the crown. He would probably say, wait a minute, I'm not the lowliest, I'm the greatest. What do you mean implying the Most High put me on the throne? I'm the son of a king, and this kingdom that reaches to the ends of the earth is all my own doing. I mean, no, that's old Nebuchadnezzar's attitude. Nebuchadnezzar's nightmare communicates the principle that God crowns whomever he chooses. Hello? Sometimes God installs world leaders all the way down to civil leaders who are the least deserving, the most wicked, right? Have you read the news? God uses even the lowliest, or in the text, basest of men to move kingdoms Toward Christ's final kingdom. So the dream speaks for God saying, Nebuchadnezzar, you're this great tree. Not because you deserve to be, but because I made you that way. But here's a newsflash, Nebuchadnezzar. You're about to get chopped down. Which is really an iconic metaphor given some recent discoveries I, I have uh, noticed. Reynolds Showers is a commentator. He wrote a commentary on the book of Daniel. And he points out uh, more recent findings that Nebuchadnezzar really, it was known for his interest in huge trees. In fact, in one of his journeys, it's recorded that as he traveled through Lebanon, one discovery shows that he actually chopped down one of the massive... How many of you remember the book of Psalms talks about the cedars of Lebanon? Yeah. Nebuchadnezzar actually traveling through there chopped down one of those massive cedar trees and he was so proud of it that he had a picture of himself cutting the tree down carved into stone. And Daniel says, Nebuchadnezzar, 
you're the tree that's about to be cut down this time. And it's going to be brought down by God. Make no mistake, this incident is all about revealing what? The sovereignty of God. To a person who has thus far refused to see it. So God first got his attention by removing his peace through one dream. Secondly, truth revealed. After peace removed, number two, is truth revealed. And that's verses 19 19 through 26. Then Daniel, whose name was Belteshazzar, was astonished for one hour. And his thoughts troubled him. The king spake and said, Belteshazzar, let not the dream or the interpretation thereof trouble thee. Belteshazzar answered and said, My lord, the dream be to them that hate thee and the interpretation thereof to thine enemies. The, the tree that thou sawest, which grew and was strong, whose height reached into heaven, and the sight thereof to all the earth, whose leaves were fair, and the fruit thereof much, and in it was meat for all, under which the beasts of the field dwelt, and upon whose branches the fowls of heaven had their habitation. It is thou, O king. Now I want you to notice Daniel's demeanor here. Because he clearly is taken back by what he's just heard. And there are a couple reasons that we should note that. One is that it is clear that he had a simple respect for Nebuchadnezzar as the king. The other is that Daniel must have known that delivering a negative revelation to the king could be pretty costly to him personally. Right? Right? However, the king, though, is under such conviction that he simply wants the truth. Now, isn't it amazing how God alone can drive people to this point right here? And so he encourages Daniel, even though Daniel knows this interpretation is not going to be good, Nebuchadnezzar encourages Daniel Go ahead, give it to me. And he says, so the tree that thou sawest, which grew, and he gives all the details, it's you. Thou art grown and become strong. I'm reading from verse 22. For the greatness is grown and reacheth unto heaven and thy dominion to the end of the earth. And now notice. And whereas the king saw a watcher and a holy one coming down from heaven and saying, Hew the tree down and destroy it, yet leave the stump of the roots thereof in the earth, even with a band of iron and brass in the tender grass of the field, and let it be wet with the dew of heaven, and let his portion be uh, with the beasts of the field till seven times pass over him. This is the interpretation, O king. And notice as he goes on to verse 25, They shall drive thee from men... Thy dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field, and they shall make thee to eat grass as oxen, and they shall wet thee with the dew of heaven, and seven times or seven years shall pass over thee, till thou know that the Most High ruleth in the kingdom of men, and giveth it, whomsoever he, and giveth it to whomsoever he will. And whereas they commanded to leave the stump of the tree roots, Thy kingdom shall be sure unto thee 
after that thou shalt have known that the heavens do rule. Now you hear the meaning of the dream. The purpose is abundantly clear. Till thou know that the Most High ruleth. God's message to Nebuchadnezzar was crystal clear. He was saying, you have walked, you have lived in a form of faulty arrogance. You've been filled with false assurance and pride. Despite my attempts, you refuse to see that I am the true sovereign. I'm about to yank you from your pedestal and humiliate you before everyone in your kingdom until you finally see that I am God alone. Now you say, that's a little harsh. Yes. Beneficial? Absolutely. It may seem cruel that God would go to such great lengths to prove his sovereignty to King Nebuchadnezzar. It may seem cruel that God has gone to such great lengths to reveal himself to either you or I. But it's certainly better than being left alone to spend eternity in hell. Right? Beyond that, it's like God hasn't warned him. I mean, he's been warned before, right? I said, thank God that he's willing to do whatever it takes to reveal himself to us and to reveal himself to lost, rebellious sinners. Right? Peace removed. Truth revealed. Thirdly, advice rendered. Verse 27. And whereas they commanded to leave the stump, excuse me, that's 26. Wherefore, O king, let my counsel be acceptable unto thee, and break off thy sins by righteousness, and thine iniquities by showing mercy to the poor, if it may be a lengthening of thy tranquility, a.k.a. peace and peaceful kingdom. So, here we certainly applaud Daniel's boldness and his courage, don't we? If you will recall, he was only asked to interpret the dream, not give counsel. But Daniel sees the opportunity and he recognizes that God has set him up for the delivery of this message and he feels compelled to offer the king some advice. His advice is precise. It is bold. The point could not be clearer. The point was, king, it's time you repent. It's time you embrace God's righteousness. It's time you embrace the things that please God because for too long you've lived to please yourself. For too long you've lived at ease and you've had want of nothing. Now it's time for you to recognize the heart and the desires of God and seek Him with all your heart. And Daniel encourages Nebuchadnezzar, die to self, turn from your sin, and seek the will of God. He is calling him to salvation. But Nebuchadnezzar does nothing about the warning. How many know that's familiar? Right? One of the universal traits of, of uh, our human nature is the unwillingness to listen to warnings. Right? 
The Associated Press, I thought it interesting, ran a story some time ago of a man who simply refused to wear his seatbelt even though he had been ticketed and fined 32 times in five years. Somebody say, hallelujah, that's a lot of tickets. And even though it cost him a minor fortune, he insisted, you know, that within his own car, he was the only authority, and he paid a a small fortune in traffic violations to protect his independence. That's the way he looked at it. Finally, he tired of paying the fines and instead of obeying the law, they said, this article said, he made a fake seatbelt that hung over his shoulder to make it appear that he was wearing a seatbelt when he really wasn't. True story. He tied one end to the strap uh, one end of the strap to his seatbelt just behind him, his head, and he, he would uh, sling over the bottom part to complete the deception. And you're thinking, why not just take the same amount of time to just buckle up? Right? It's amazing the lengths we go sometimes in resisting submission to authority, isn't it? Aren't you glad none of us has ever done that? No. His trick worked. He wasn't ticketed anymore. Till he had a head-on collision. And they said, due to his point of impact, he most likely would have survived if he had had his seatbelt on. But it threw him into the steering wheel and took his life. The resistance to heed a warning is actually more commonplace than we'd like to even think. In fact, I thought it interesting. Some time ago, a medical survey pointed out that uh, there was they, back when this survey was written. Um, there's around 600,000 people that have open heart surgery every year here in America, and the patients are told uh, that their bypass surgery is only a temporary fix, and and they've survived and have been given another chance to change right? And so their doctors implore them, stop smoking, stop drinking, stop eating so much, start exercising, right? Oh, it's quiet in here. In essence, this report said, doctors have delivered the message to millions of Americans, simply saying, you've been brought back from the brink of death, you better change, because next time, you may not be so fortunate, right? And according to that medical survey, get ready, they said 90% of the open-heart surgery survivors change absolutely nothing. 90% change absolutely nothing. Why would that be? Well, probably for the same reason before GPSs that we didn't like to pull over and ask for directions, right? We have to admit to a total stranger that we're lost, right? You ain't got to do that much anymore because you got GPS. But I mean, who wants to admit that you're wrong? Who wants to change direction? Who wants to admit a failure? Somebody say, nobody. Right? So this story becomes one of the most remarkable admissions of failure in the entire record of human history. And Nebuchadnezzar's changed heart bears witness to his remarkable uh, 
transformation, but it wasn't until after he had effectively had a head-on collision with the discipline of God, only in his case, thankfully, he survived to tell the story, right? Peace removed, truth revealed, advice rendered. Number four, punishment received. 28 through 33. All this came upon the king Nebuchadnezzar. At the end of 12 months, he walked in the palace of the kingdom of Babylon. The king spoke and said, Is not this great Babylon that I have built for the house of the kingdom by the might of my power and for the honor of my majesty? While the word was in the king's mouth, there fell a voice from heaven saying, O king Nebuchadnezzar, to thee it is spoken. The kingdom is departed from thee. They shall drive thee from men, and thy dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field. They shall make thee to eat the grass. You know the story. It says in the same hour it happened. Right? All this came upon the king. What a statement, because all that God revealed happened exactly as it was revealed. It was, he was driven from humanity absolutely humiliated by God. He is the ultimate picture now of brokenness. Right? Brokenness. You won't find any other man more broken in Scripture than him right now. The height from which he fell and the depth to which he sunk rivals that of anyone else in Scripture. God decided to absolutely crush his pride. Seven years of humiliation were appointed for Nebuchadnezzar to live like an animal. Which leads us to this final leg of the story, number five, sovereignty recognized. And that's verses 34 through 36. And at the end of the days, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted up my eyes unto heaven and mine understanding returned unto me. Somebody say, that's a miracle. That is a miracle. And I blessed the Most High, and I praised and honored Him that liveth forever, whose dominion is an everlasting dominion, whose kingdom is from generation to generation. In short, after such a period of time, long period of time, Nebuchadnezzar says, I get it. No more blessing Daniel. No more praising Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. He says in verse 34, No, I blessed the Most High. And I praised and I honored Him that liveth forever, whose dominion is an everlasting one. In short, Nebuchadnezzar had come to the realization, He is God. And He is King. And I am nothing. Right? My kingdom is not eternal, but God's is. You have to love this newfound humility because he testifies that God, you're so powerful, you're going to do anything you want to do. No one can stop you. No one can question you. And Nebuchadnezzar has finally humbled himself before this holy God of the universe. And verse 36 says, at 
the same time my reason returned unto me, and for the glory of my kingdom, mine honor and brightness returned unto me, my counselors and my lords sought unto me, and I was established in my kingdom, and excellent majesty was added unto me. Man, if I would have been God, I would have left him. Right? Just leave Nebuchadnezzar alone. Let him die like an animal. But oh, aren't you thankful for the mercies of God? I said, aren't you thankful for the long-suffering of God? After God had humbled him, God restored him. Mm. That's one of the most breathtaking details of this whole story. After living like an animal for seven years, God brings him back to his throne room and restores to him honor and respect in an entire kingdom. The point being made here is that God is not out to harm us. He is here to redeem us. Somebody ought to praise God right there. God is not out to harm us. His objective is to redeem us. He gets no joy about judging somebody and leaving them. No, He gets joy when they are restored. And they begin to say, Oh God, I would not be here if it wasn't for you. When I look back and see where I've come from, I have to say, thank you, Lord, for your amazing grace. Hallelujah. Nebuchadnezzar needed to be redeemed from his pride, saved from his arrogance and selfishness. He needed to drop that trio of toxic sins like the spiritual killers that they are. But God indeed put him through a difficult process to do that, but it was effective. It was effective. And this arrogant man was humbled. And God said, mission accomplished. So if the declaration Nebuchadnezzar makes about God in verses 2 and 3 seems strange, you have to go and let him explain the rest of the story. There's a reason that he's decided to declare to the world that God's kingdom is in fact the everlasting one. And that God's dominion is lasting from generation to generation. He's declaring it because God had revealed it to him firsthand, personally, and directly. All right, so last point. Jump back out in the outline. Number three, the exaltation. In verse 37, Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and extol and honor the King of heaven, all whose works are truth and his ways judgment and those that walk in pride he is able to abase. Wow. Nebuchadnezzar now stops and give, gives God the absolute praise, glory, and honor that he deserves and he testifies that there is no one I like this part. There is no one beyond God's reach. That church alone is encouraging. 
We pray for the president. We pray for our government. We pray for judges. We pray for our bosses. We pray for family members. We pray for our coworkers. And after years of praying for them, we're, we're tempted to give up and lose hope and say, they're never going to get it. But if Nebuchadnezzar was here tonight, he would say, don't give up. He would say, if God was able to get through to me, he's able to get through to anybody. Oh, somebody ought to raise your hands and say, thank you, Jesus. Nebuchadnezzar would testify that if God could break him down, he can most certainly break down the wayward soul that you, my friend, have been praying for over and over again. The Apostle Paul's testimony in 1 Timothy 1, 12-17 is basically the same thing that Nebuchadnezzar was saying. Paul said, I was wayward. I was beyond salvation. I was the chiefest of sinners. But that didn't stop God from reaching me. In fact, God made an example of me by saving me. He proved that if I can be saved, anybody could be saved. Oh, Hallelujah. So don't stop praying. Don't stop interceding for those that you are burdened for. God is always able. I said He is always able to reach them. Don't forget that. We should also recognize that we're not the only one who longs for the sinner to repent. God is also at work. He is, hey, He's already decreed that He is Alpha and Omega. He has already decreed that every knee shall bow. He has already decreed that His Son will reign forever and ever. And the book of Revelation showed us again and again that all nations are going to surround His throne and are going to worship Him in every language. The end of Revelation shows that even those who reject Him in this life will still bow their knee before His great throne of judgment. They're going to bow one of these days. And God is in the process of redeeming this fallen world back into subjection to himself. It's going to happen. And stories like Nebuchadnezzar's are just good reminders that this whole process is about God receiving the glory he deserves. God's objective in this world is not to give sinners the comfort they seek. Nebuchadnezzar already had that. He said, I was resting at ease in my palace, but then God took it away from him. God's objective is to bring sinners to the place where they will repent and give him the glory that he deserves. And we are so flooded with false doctrines about how God should show up and grant us every little thing that our flesh craves and desires. People believe that God is nothing more than a genie in a bottle who is forced to bless our finances if we do thus and so. That is clearly not God's objective. He is out to bring sinners to repentance so they will glorify God. May we remember that as we pray. May we remember that as we witness. May we remember that as we walk through our own difficult times. It's all about His glory. And God has just squared off with the first of four world rulers alive during the time of Daniel. And God has, is going to reveal His greatness to all of them. So now at the end of chapter 4, we have one down and three to go. Stand with me. God is eternally 
unmistakably sovereign. And we will never be able to outrun the reach of his divine acts that will bring us down if we choose to live in arrogance like Nebuchadnezzar did, rather than in submission and in obedience to him. Nebuchadnezzar could team up with Johnny Cash when he said, God's going to cut you down. Hello. I told the musicians earlier before we came out, I said, I want you to come and sing that song at the end. I was only kidding. (laughs) But church, it sounds harsh. But to be chopped is really one of those, what the scripture would refer to, severe mercies of God. It is for our greater good. Right? Because it brings us in the end to the realization He is God and I am not. Why don't you raise your hands and praise Him right where you're at. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. You did it for Nebuchadnezzar. And God, you to be honest, you've probably done it for some of us in here. When we were lifted up in pride, you came along in your special way and you humbled us. It was not easy to swallow at the time, but it ended up saving our spiritual life. And for that, we want to say thank you. Why don't you thank God for his mercy? Why don't you thank him for that restoration? Hey, he didn't have to bring Nebuchadnezzar back and restore him. He could have let him expire out in the field like an animal. But he brought him back and restored him. Oh, amazing grace. Let's sing it, amazing grace. What a classic hymn. I believe, I believe we could sing it together tonight. Thank you, Jesus. Let's sing it as we just, you got a moment? I don't know. I might have went a little long tonight. If you want to come and just seek the Lord and maybe keep praying for that individual that hasn't got it yet. You're saying, Lord, I've been praying for them. They just haven't got it yet. Keep praying. Keep praying. If God can reach Nebuchadnezzar, He can reach anybody. Amazing grace. Oh, sing it, church. That say a wrench like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found. Oh, I was blind, but now Nebuchadnezzar could sing that. I once was blind, but now I see amazing grace. How sweet. Oh, who is it you want to bring before the Lord? Who is it tonight you're burdened about? Is it a friend? Is it a family member? Oh, God, touch us tonight. Help us to keep their name before the cross. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus.